Welcome to Radio Free Culture from WFMU, where we examine issues at the intersection of digital culture and the arts. My name is Jason Siegel, and today we'll be taking a look at the player piano. Developed in the late 1800s, the self-playing piano really inspired the first digital music revolution. It operated on a sort of punch card called piano rolls, which is a term we still use in reference to digital music. It also transformed our understanding of what music is, what paper can do, and of where copyright fits in to new music technologies. Over the next two weeks, we'll be looking at the various ways that the history of the player piano still resonates. In this episode, we'll speak with Michael Simon, president and CEO of the Harry Fox Agency. They're the number one resource for mechanical licenses these days, and he's got some great insights about the legacy of the player piano and how it informs the future of the music industry. Today, this is still the way it works. There are more regulations upon those who create musical works than those who actually create very dangerous objects that are introduced into society and result in extreme harm to human beings. We'll also speak with Professor Lisa Gittleman, a scholar of new media through the lens of old media, and Paper. She's the author of the book Paper Knowledge. Player piano rolls provoked a kind of crisis in copyright law. People were stuck sort of looking at sheet music on the one hand. Okay, here's a piece of paper. It's got dots on it. And then looking at the piano roll, wait, this is a piece of paper too, but instead of dots, it has holes in it. It ended up going all the way to the Supreme Court uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. But first, we'll welcome David Seussman, who some might recognize as host of WFMU's Inner Ear Detour, Uh, During the school year, he's a professor of history at the University of Delaware, and he's the author of the award-winning book, Selling Sounds, The Commercial Revolution in American Music. I asked him about the relationship between the player piano and its contemporary, the phonograph. Well, the player piano and the phonograph, it's interesting. They actually sort of emerge at the same time. Um, They really emerge in this sort of interconnected way. Um, a lot of people, from today's vantage point, they seem kind of separate from each other. The phonograph seems really revolutionary, and the player piano seems like a novelty. But in fact, at the time, the opposite was really true. The um, the, the player piano was the thing that seemed so revolutionary because it was revolutionizing the critical uh, music technology of the 19th century, which was the piano. And uh, the at the turn of the century, phonographs were not yet associated with the music business in any substantial way. And so people thought of them as a toy or a novelty. And so what happens at the turn of the century is you have a number of different components of the music industry. You have sheet music or Tin Pan Alley, and that was um, the biggest component. And uh, then you have the phonograph and player piano industries, and they were putting out uh, player piano rolls and records, phonograph records, uh, often, not always, but often using copyrighted musical material, and they weren't paying for, they weren't paying anything for it because there was no um, legal obligation for them to do so. Publish, publishing companies, all the copyright holders, um, didn't like this arrangement very much, and they started to pressure um, Congress to reform the copyright law, and um, starting around 1905. So, yeah, what what were some of the arguments during these debates? On either side. Well, the arguments are are interesting. Um, From the point of view of the publishers and the copyright holders, and I should say at this point, 
who's really pushing for this is the publishing companies. It's not usually very much the composers. The composers, except for the biggest composers like Victor Herbert and John Philip Sousa, uh, you hear very little from work-a-day composers in this, in this whole battle. It's mostly the big publishing companies. And they're arguing that uh, they're getting ripped off and that their copyrights are being infringed upon by all of these mechanical reproducing technologies. And then on the other side of these debates are the uh, company, the player piano roll companies and the record companies. And they argue, they have several arguments. One of them is that they're not infringing um, because these aren't copies. Uh, and as we just mentioned, another is that they've already paid, they already paid the um, publishing companies by buying the sheet music that's being performed. They say that they've they bought a copy of the sheet music and they're allowed to do anything they want with it just the way any old consumer would be able to. And then the other argument that they advance is that they are helping the publishing companies and the publishing companies should uh, be thanking them rather than trying to, to sue them, um, that they're actually helping sales. Um, by promoting by promoting this copyrighted music and promoting sheet music sales, so yeah, like sa- sales of what? I mean, here's today we we hear like you know the the free downloads helping sales of recordings, but here they they were saying the recordings are helping sales of this other thing. Exactly, exactly, and in fact, the sheet music industry is growing at this time, and it continues to be more and more profitable. And then it's only when the um, mechanical reproduction technologies take off when the uh, when when player pianos and phonographs start to become big business in the uh, first decade and the the second decade of the 20th century that's when the tin pan alley publishers see that somebody else is making a lot of money off of their copyrighted material so something else that was up for debate at the time is you know what is uh, mechanical reproduction worth and who gets to do it? And it's pretty amazing that what we end up getting is what's called the Compulsory Mechanical License, established by the Copyright Act of 1909. And it lets anyone record any other person's copyrighted composition without their approval at, at a fixed rate set by the government. So whether you want to record and sell a cover of Purple Rain by Prince or a cover of our theme song for the show, uh, Smoothest Runes by Thick Business, uh, these days, it'll cost you 9.1 cents per copy, and you don't need Prince's permission. Yeah, it's amazing. It'd be damn near impossible to do just about anything else with a Prince song, right? Like if you wanted to sample it or uh, you know use it in a film, uh, that's that's not that's not happening. Uh, and things could have turned out very different for the compulsory mechanical license too, right, David? Well, the compulsory license was a um, uh, a clever compromise. There was this devious plan by uh, the leading player piano company, Aeolian, um, to corner the market. Basically, Aeolian, up until 1909, was producing copyrighted material for free uh, with its piano rolls. And in advance of this copyright reform, it strikes up a secret deal with almost all of the major publishers, which says that if player piano rolls are found to be copies legally uh, under the copyright law, that Aeolian would then have an exclusive license to uh, the, the copyrighted material of almost all of the leading publishers. So, and this meant that um, it w- they were in sort of a win-win situation. 
if they were if it was found that copyright um, applied to these uh, player piano rolls, then they had this backdoor uh, way of cornering the whole market. And if they found out that copyright didn't apply to the player piano rolls, then they wouldn't have to pay for it anyway. So they were in this great situation. And the compulsory license uh, is devised as a way of preventing that kind of um, maneuver. Uh, because it said that once any once a, a work was um, copied uh, through some kind of mechanical reproductive technology, then anybody could uh, make copies of it, not just you couldn't have this sort of secret private licensing deal um, that, would, that would maintain a, a monopoly of control. We've been talking with David Sussman, author of Selling Sounds, and we'll hear more from this interview next week as we dig deeper into the digital legacy of the player piano. But first, let's take a look at things from an analog perspective. NYU professor Lisa Gittleman is author of the book Paper Knowledge, and she's also written a fantastic article about these pre-1909 copyright debates through the lens of paper. Player piano rolls provoked a kind of crisis in copyright law. Um, Musicians, composers had long made uh, royalties on the publication of sheet music. So if you wanted to play a musical piece, you had to buy the sheet music, and that's how composers got paid. Uh, Well, along came phonograph records, but also player piano rolls, and you could buy a player piano roll and just do an end run around needing sheet music at all. So the composers weren't making any money. People were stuck sort of looking at sheet music on the one hand, okay, here's a piece of paper, it's got dots on it, and then looking at the piano roll, wait, this is a piece of paper too, but instead of dots, it has holes in it. And, and, and really people you know, really kind of stuck thinking, how can we put these two things in relation to each other? How are they the same? Um, and how are they so importantly different? It ended up going all the way to the Supreme Court uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. When, when did you first become interested in uh, player piano and, and the, the piano rolls? Uh, well, I was interested in the earliest phonograph records from 1878, which were um, the original recordings were on tinfoil. Um, they sounded horrible, as you can well, well imagine. Um, tinfoil is a terrible recording surface, but that, you know, briefly was how the kind of concept of recorded sound was demonstrated to the American public. Um, and from there, I mean, I was just kind of interested in the the, the qualities of that recording surface, um, and I'm really interested in paperwork. I'm really interested in the work that in, inventors and, and, and the rest of us uh, do on and with uh, paper and the kinds of things that paper the unexpected things that paper can do. Um, so uh, piano rolls were a kind of natural step there. So you mentioned uh, the cultural context of, of the piano and that the piano meant something maybe different than, than the phonograph and this kind of way of playing back music through a real piano um, had different meaning to, to the culture at the time. I think that's right. And um, a kind of important player in this copyright dispute, but also um, in the conceptual work around recorded sound, was the uh, great American band leader, John Philip Sousa, who was also an important composer. Um, and he was a rabid opponent uh, of recorded music and of piano rolls. Um, and he, in fact, coined the term canned music, um, most probably in reference to the phonograph records of the day, which were cylindrical in shape, so they looked like cans. Um, and so 
he, you know, kind of concocted that pejorative for us. Um, and it was just harder to slam the piano rolls because, as you say, they were playing on real pianos. Um, Not out it, of a can. It wasn't, yeah, it wasn't canned. It was an actual piano. He was making an argument out of craven self-interest, right, that he was losing these royalties. But he was also quite successful in making the argument that, that uh, these new technologies weren't just bad for Sousa, but they were actually bad for American music. Um, that all kinds of things were going to sort of, you know, go down the tubes um, uh, beyond just composers, that amateur music making, the family sing-along uh, was more or less doomed um, because amateur music making in the home could be uh, sort of overtaken by new mechanical means, that kind of thing, uh, as well as this kind of qualities of music that people were appreciating because of the decline in professional standards. For me, one of the lessons of these earlier technologies has always been that quality doesn't matter as much as a lot of people think it does. That, you know, when you love a song, a crappy reproduction of it, you know, just you play it over and over and over again. Part of Seuss's argument um, that, it, that recorded sound just isn't as good ended up not being that important. So this, uh, this court case, it's uh, White Smith versus Apollo? Right. It, it, it had to do with recorded sound in general and so with phonograph records, which were much more important, I think, economically. Um, but it came to the court uh, as an issue about paper and piano rolls um, because that's just tr- harder to think about. So at the time, composers, their, their main source of revenue was sheet music. Yep. Um, that's just the way uh, copyright law works. I mean, if you take apart the word copyright, what they really were making money on is the right to copy those individual pieces of sheet music. Um, So if somebody had republished your song without your permission, you could sue the living daylights out of them. If somebody recorded your song, right, moving to a different medium uh, entirely, you kind of had no grounds, um, which is why the courts got involved and eventually why Congress um, sort of tweaked copyright law. So so copyright you need a physical manifestation of the of the thing in order for copyright to exist. It's That's... a paradox, kind of, but yes, um, copyright, um, like patents, they're, it's a, they're about ideas, right? But it's really always the tangible expression of those ideas um, that interests uh, um, the law. Like, what what was John Philip Sousa's? How how did he view all this? What was copyright? Yeah, see, he, re- he really wanted his musical conception to be copyrighted. Um, the idea itself, no matter how it was expressed, whether it's on paper or on a shellac disc or on a hard drive, he thought, you know, it was my, I made up the song, I made up the march, it should be mine. Um, it's just not how American copyright law works. Um, our copyright system, it's not the case everywhere else in the world, but our copyright system uh, really has nothing to do with natural law. It's not about um, protecting the inherent rights in your ideas. Um, instead, it's a limited term monopoly, right? It's a grant that you get from the government to take advantage of the material expressions of your idea in a particular form. Um, and so the form at this point was limited to sheet music, and that's what Sousa had a right in. Yeah, when I look at a piano roll, to me, I, I can sort of imagine what it might sound like. Um, but that wasn't the case in 1906. I think, for me, one of the most interesting things about the litigation about the piano rolls and the sheet music um, was that it devolved often to this question of whether you could read a piano roll. Because obviously, if you, if you can read sheet music, you can read sheet music. Um, but a piano roll, okay, instead of having notes, it has holes. If you could read it, 
then really it was just another form of sheet music and should be sort of protected under the composer's copyright. Um, so that was the way the, the question got posed. Like, can you read a piano roll? Um, and they hauled in these makers of piano rolls to give testimony. And I think the person who made the roll probably did evolve a kind of tacit knowledge where they could figure out what the role, what piece of music the role played. Um, but the courts, right, the courts said, no, that's ridiculous. When you buy a piano roll, you're not buying it to read it. You're buying it to put it in the piano so the piano, quote, reads, unquote, it. Um, and so it's a kind of early machine-readable uh, text, if you like. People didn't buy them to read them. But if you unfurl one, right, and look at it longitudinally, any, any particular line um, uh, of holes has a potential 88 number of holes. It's really a map of the keyboard. Um, and in that sense, it's not digital. Uh, it's analog. It's, it's kind of one-to-one. -one. We've been talking with Lisa Gittleman, author of Paper Knowledge. And in her article, Media Materiality and the Measure of the Digital, she goes into more detail about this really incredible court case, White Smith Music Publishing Company versus Apollo, Piano Roll Manufacturing Company. Because in 1908, the Supreme Court decided that Apollo could keep on making piano rolls without paying any royalties for the musical composition. Of course, the next year is the Copyright Act of 1909, and this established the compulsory mechanical license, which is still with us today. These days, the Harry Fox Agency is the number one source for mechanicals. They collect and distribute mechanical license fees on behalf of music publishers, and they're doing some really interesting work adapting their business model to the digital era. I stopped by the Harry Fox office to interview their president and CEO, Michael Simon, and he had something pretty incredible to show me when I walked in. What's particularly cool about this piano roll is notice who played it. Wow. Yeah. Gershwin. The original piano rolls were not machine made. They were a, a piano was, was fitted with a piece of paper that hadn't been punched yet. So they had to have piano players make the piano rolls. So someone, piano player, sits there reading sheet music, playing piano like they do, and is punching the holes. And this one, which is a foxtrot in E-flat called Whispering by Schoenberger, was played by George Gershwin. And what's particularly cool about these, I'll probably ruin it. I don't think it's that bad. How many of these are, are there in the world? <laughs> you know, Lots. what roles played by Gershwin? Oh, that, uh, there were many, but I don't know how many still exist. That was one of the things he did for a living. If you, but there are instructions on here that will start to explain, like, you'll see in the window, this is what you're going to see. These are instructions for pianissimo, pianissimo, for, yeah. pianissimo forte. forte, and this is what will tell you, like, how to set the pedals to produce the right result. But on here, if a song had lyrics, if you hold on to that, and I'll destroy it now, it shows the actual, here's the keys. See the F right there? Forte, it's, it's, oh, right. it's switching from mezzo forte. It's going to switch to forte. So it might very well be, on certain of these pianos, your only job might be to sit there and look in the window and see the letters and then switch the piano's intonation or volume. 
you're just going to sit there and watch it roll. You're going to start at mezzo forte, and when you're, you're watching the window, it's going by, and it says, oh, forte, and you hit a button, and it starts to, the hammer start to hit it harder. So, so it's, it's kind of like an interactive... It, you're just doing it's, it, it's it, but not see, automatic here it is. See the lyrics? Oh, wow. And it's going to be rolling by like traffic, you know, like when they print on the road upside down. And these words will appear in the window at the exact right time for you to sing correctly with the music. And these instructions will appear in the window to tell you how to modulate your piano for the right level of force from mezzo forte to forte, back to mezzo forte, and, you know. This is, this is incredible. Thank you for, for sharing this with me. One, one of the moments that I'm, I'm really interested in is kind of the early 1900s when, you know, the industry was, was kind of based on sheet music, and then here we have pieces of paper that can actually play back the recording. And uh, there was a question of whether it's human-readable, whether a human can look at this. Yes. Um, that actually kind of played a big role in, in the beginnings of the mechanical royalty. Yes. There was a time, ultimately, this became a mechanical reproduction recognized under the statute as a protectable work bearing a royalty. But in the beginning, people said, this isn't the music. It's a piece of paper with holes in it. Well, what is music? Well, I'm, I'm just blowing wind into a wooden black tube and putting my finger in certain places. It sounds mildly entertaining and fun, but it actually is directly relevant to the debates that we have when someone comes in here and seeks a license for MIDI we are often challenged with, well, what is, what is, what is that? Or these days, stems, you know what stems are? Yeah, oh, that's becoming a, a so big thing. stem licensing and what are stems and, or if you're thinking, or think about it in a more modern, even more modern sense, think about what BitTorrent is. Mm-hmm. And if someone torrents a file, they've completely disassembled it and then reassembled it. Let's talk about how the piano roll in, in many ways is responsible for the fact that we could record a cover. Congress, probably starting in the late 1800s all the way through to 1909 when the 1909 Act, Copyright Act, was ultimately passed, had to debate what the actual purpose of copyright was. They did not create an unfettered market. They said, you can control your works, you can control their creative exploitation, you can control their commercial exploitation, but we are going to take an amount of control away from you because we are worried about the possibility of monopolistic practices. Yeah. So what, what was that? What was that possibility? The possibility that if there's if there's one organization that makes machines that play these kinds of roles, and there's one organization that aggregates the rights and grants it only to that company that makes those roles. Well, if you can't join that organization you can't have your work commercialized in the most predominant form. Some, so Congress decided that a creator could control the first use of their work. If I don't publish it, you can't do what you described, which is cover the, cover the song. But Congress decided that if a creator made that work publicly available, then anyone else could record or use that work for reproduction. That is our compulsory license. Technically, that is Section 115 of the Copyright Act. And that section establishes the compulsory license, and that section actually establishes the royalty. So Congress believed that it was appropriate to actually regulate how much the creative community could earn. They were worried 
that the free market might also facilitate the creation of monopolies. I've always found it odd, or not odd, interesting, that our Congress decided, and still decides today, this is still the way it works, with more nuance, but this is the way it works, that the creative community requires regulation. There are more regulations upon those who create musical works than those who actually create very dangerous objects that are introduced into society and result sometimes in extreme harm to human beings. And in fact, it's very hard to unstick legislation once it becomes the law. We did it with prohibition, but we've had that compulsory since 1909. We've, we've had the compulsory for 115 years. Songwriters are still regulated. So, so if I want to cover the Beatles, absolutely, or you can absolutely do it. Or if I want to cover, you know, an artist that no one has ever heard of, it's the same. The same. As long as they made a license. first use of it, you can record that, and you can rely upon a compulsory license and a statutory royalty rate. And, and where's the place to go to get that? You would come here most of the time. So, so tell, tell us a little bit you more about... You always come here. If, if the band is really that under... Like Sylvanesso, super hip underground band, might actually be controlled by a publisher that we represent, but they may not. Mm-hmm. If they are not represented by us, if you're a large distributor, we can help you get those rights anyway because we can help you issue a compulsory notice to either the person who controls the rights, like the band sitting in their house in Brooklyn, or if we can't find the band, the U.S. Copyright Office, you can serve that notice. But if you want to cover, if you want to cover White Christmas, that's us. We issue millions of licenses a year, millions of licenses a year. We've got hundreds of millions of licenses under administration here. I mean, are there, are there parallels, do you think, between kind of the early 1900s when these new technologies for, for, uh, that, that were changing the way that our culture understands music and reproduction, changing it from, from a culture that, that uh, primarily experienced music like in the home through sheet music um, to a culture where there's reproduction everywhere. Um, and now re- recent changes have just totally revolutionized the way that people understand music um, in our culture t- today, where everything is potentially accessible, like I walked in here, you know, you can we can listen to whatever we want almost on Spotify. Um, so, how is that? Are there parallels that you see to Absolutely. kind of, and and what what are some of the the more interesting parallels? Well, structurally, there is a recurring cycle that's been going on since the 1890s. That though each person experiencing it says this is brand new and unprecedented. In fact, structurally, the cycle in the music industry goes from massive disruption to a period of stabilization to a period of revenue. So piano rolls were massively disruptive. The advent of of wax cylinder or shellac disc recording was massively disruptive. The introduction of radio to the industry, massively disruptive. Prohibition was massively disruptive to the industry. The introduction of cassettes was massively disruptive, so much so that when I used to buy vinyl in the mid-70s and you'd pull out the record, the inner sleeve would have a cassettes kill message from the Recording Industry Association of America that cassettes and home taping were going to kill the recording industry. Each 
subsequent introduction destroys the industry. But if you if you get off of the this is well, yeah, but that was nothing. Then the next thing people say is, I know that we say that, but the truth is, there's nothing like digital, and we've never seen anything like that. This is really disruptive. Yeah, I get it. Tactically, these are perfect, perfect unlimited copies. You start to see, all right, now that if everyone's doing it and no one's paying anybody, I can't tell if the business model is legitimate because they're very profitable, but they've got no cost of doing business for the, for the rights. They've got huge costs. They've rented a place in New Jersey and they've got people building these Edison cylinder boxes, but they're not paying for rights. And until we know what that cost is, we don't know if, they're, if their business model is truly financially legitimate. So now that we've established rights, legal rights, copyright rights, the 1909 compulsory, where there was a debate about what a reproduction was and we're not going to debate it anymore. We're going to say what it is and we're going to establish the right and the rate. Now we can see that guy went out of business right away because he didn't have the two cents to pay. This guy's still got a great business and he picked up the business from the guy who went out of business. So now we went from disruption to stabilization once the rights and rates became identified to a period of revenue. So that which was going to kill the industry effectively fueled the industry. So radio was going to destroy the industry. Why would you buy records if you could listen to it for free on the radio? We've all heard recently, why would I buy that if it's available for free? As if that's a new argument. But look what happened with radio. It went from destroying the industry to generating vast quantities of money for both the publishing industry and the recorded music industry. So much so that the other piece of that cycle is that the disruptors often end up generating enough revenue to buy that which they've disrupted, which is why we have the broadcasting networks end up being the record companies. So we had Radio Corporation of America became one of the largest record companies. Radio Corporation that was going to destroy the industry becomes one of the largest record companies when they decide that they can horizontally and vertically integrate and start to buy the content that they're putting on their network and control the entire ecosystem. Columbia Broadcasting. But So you see, the cycle recurs. You go from massive disruption to a period of trying to clarify rights and rates, to a period of stabilization, to a period of revenue, somebody uses that revenue to create the next disruptive event. You know, with this kind of his- historical perspective that you have, what what is uh, Harry Fox doing to, to, and where do you see kind of the industry heading? Harry Fox is endeavoring to create the most efficient market for copyright. That is a wonderful thing to say and very difficult to execute. And as, as some people say, vision without execution is a hallucination. Uh, we are trying to marry the concept of creating efficient markets for musical copyright with actually executing a program to do that, which means we struggle on a daily basis to, to determine how to license all the new businesses. We are not here passing judgment on new business models and saying that's going to fail and I'm not going to license and you guys are all criminals. We do have opinions about there are criminals out there and there are businesses that will fail, but our mission is to create the most efficient licensing regime for as many of the new businesses as possible. And that, that's really where, that's where we are going, is trying to empower all of those new businesses. Some of them seem old hat now, depending on how old you are. Yeah, you're licensing Spotify or Rhapsody. They've been around since 2003, but that's not that old. And every day, our business team is having conversations with people who are figuring out new things to do as they bend and twist the technology that's available to create different kinds of music distribution methodologies.
And our job is to try to understand that and go right back to my cycle and say, all right, that was a very interesting ethereal conversation about the new technology you're going to deploy to make music available on refrigerators and homes. Great. Let's go right back to the cycle. What are the rights and what are the rates? Is it a reproduction right? Is it, dis is it a display right? If I'm putting lyrics on a computer screen, how did they get there? That's probably a distribution. But if they're visible on the screen, that's probably a display. Can you hit print? That might be a print right. Nope, we're not gonna allow anyone to print. So we'll ignore hackers who can always figure it out. It's not gonna be designed to print. But it has to go from a server in California to my computer in New York. That's probably a distribution. And if I'm looking at it, probably a display. Maybe not a print. So what we always do is we go back to the fundamentals that we were all taught in law school or business school or by those who mentored us to say, all right, let's analyze what the rights are. Let's analyze what the user experience is. If we can't figure out what the rights are, the legal rights are, well, let's just try to describe the animal. What's happening is something that is ones and zeros on a server in Cupertino is manifesting on my screen in New York musical notation. All right. I don't really know what that is under the Copyright Act, but it sounds like something was transmitted to me. All right, let's work with that. Transmission, distribution. I'm starting to get into the zone of being able to relate that to the rights that I understand under the Copyright Act. And once I understand what the rights are, we can determine whether or not there is a determined rate for it or whether or not there needs to be a determined rate for it and what is the process if a rate needs to be determined. Is it determined by a administrative body in Washington, a court in New York, commercial partners negotiating, however that works out. Our goal is always to analyze the rights, analyze the rates, try to create an efficient market for copyright, and enable people to experiment. So, so part of this process seems like, you know, trying to put a, you know, a square peg in a round hole in some cases, like translating these new Different, different. I mean, in the same way that the piano roll called for a new mechanical royalty, do, do you think that there need to be any changes to copyright to kind of just maybe maybe simplify all of all of these different rights? Maybe, but everyone in our business is saying it's too complicated. It needs to be simplified, and we need to be more transparent. Those words have become diluted to the point of being unintelligible to me, and. I don't debate that the copyright industries are complex to those who are not expert in the copyright industries, but I also don't expect a brain surgeon to tell me that brain surgery is complex or my tax lawyer to tell me that tax is complex. That doesn't engender confidence in me. Tax law is complicated to me. I'm not a tax lawyer. I'm hiring you as a tax lawyer. I don't want you to say, wow, man, thanks for hiring me as your tax lawyer. It's really complicated. I'm really not sure. I, I want you to say, there may be some challenges that will test my professional capabilities, but I am a highly trained, sophisticated tax lawyer. It is not complex to me. You are just presenting an interesting business problem. So when people throw around complexity, to me, that starts to become a commercial euphemism for, because I don't know how to do it, the world should change to make it possible for me to do it. The notion that it's, it's too complex, for whom? For the people who don't want to pay what is their motivation for saying it's complex? Because they have to hire a professional to handle it and they don't want to pay for it? Or because it's unintelligible to experts? It's, copyright is not complex to me. It's complex to those who have not specialized in it. I guess one of the most inter interesting kind of opportunities to me is, is uh, there are now, everyone is a 
media producer, almost ev- anyone with, with YouTube and things like that. And uh, people are encountering copyright who never encountered it before. So that's where the need to make it less complex, or at least to provide kind of the tools that I think HFA is working on um, to just make it easy to for everyone to support each other. It's more to me about the tools than making it less complex. So I'm very resistant to the notion that it is too complicated. I'm more in the spirit of it behooves all of us to make it to make whatever it is or becomes user friendly to the creative community so that they can do what they want to do and see if there's a consumer for it. Doesn't mean I need to go to Congress. <laughs> it means I need if I'm really up in the business, I need to hire the experts that I need to hire. And if I'm a user using Pro Tools in my dorm tonight and I want to post it online, I'd like to post it online in a forum that is properly licensed. And I don't want to even have to think about it. You don't think about it now. You're downloading software. You're downloading software to your phone all the time, taking in apps. And you're downloading it to your laptop all the time. Do you know how complicated it was to create the end user, the EULA, the end user license agreement, and make it so that a massive grant of rights, 50 pages of legal language, is brought to bear on the app that you put on your phone. All you did was you went into the Apple store and you said, this one's free and I want it, and this one's a buck ninety-nine, but it ties to my credit card and I want it, and type in my password and it's on my phone. A major legal transaction occurred there between those who control the rights and those who traffic in the rights and those who acquired the object. But they did not render the legal underpinnings of it less complicated. It's actually very complicated. Go in and, and look at the look at the oh, grant of rights. And I don't want know. to read the, the no. EULA. No, but you'll know. You, that's, that's what I'm talking about. Is they didn't make it, well, we have a one-page license. No, they didn't. It's a billion-page license. Mm-hmm. They just made it irrelevant to you, right. even though it's there for someone who needs it, meaning if the rights holder needs to enforce their rights, they've got those rights. And if the distributor wants to say, I obtained the rights properly, they've got the agreement. But you don't need to know about it. It's all, it's the modern miracle. Netflix on my television through my Apple hub. A total miracle. And all I'm doing is surfing and picking a movie. But I'm every time entering into a copyright arrangement with several people, with the owner of the motion picture and the person who has a cut in the pipeline and Netflix for the interface and Time Warner who's giving me the bandwidth. All of those are legal agreements based on commercial contract terms and copyright. It is very complicated for that world to work. But my user experience is, I just want to watch the Italian trip tonight, and I'm going to hit a button, I'm going to watch it. Very simple. That's what we need to do in the music business. Much less time using Congress as a proxy battle for defeating the rights of the creative community, who will create less and actually undermine the fundamental principles of our democracy, because they will produce less dialogue in the marketplace if they're not able to make a living doing it. I want fewer musicians to have to take day jobs. Me too. I will take a day job so that they don't have to. And I want people to keep trying to write cool songs so that I can hear the next B-52's record. That's what I want to do. Um, Michael Simon, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me. Thanks for coming to hang out. Oh, it's been, it's been a blast. I, I had one more question. Do you, are, are, is Harry Fox uh, issuing mechanical licenses for many piano roles these days? No. There, I'm unaware of issuing a single one. Wow. So if so, if you want to tell me right now on the record that there's a company that's manufacturing them, <laughs> we should get their phone number because I would love to do it just because it would be interesting. Um, I, 
<laughs> I'm not sure if they're still manufacturing, but I know that there was one operating up up until at least maybe five years ago. Making new piano rolls? Yeah. Wow. There was a guy named Conlon Nancaro, who was a not really classical music, but a classical, he'd be in the classical vein, and his compositional tools were to create piano rolls and then run them through pianos, but not the way Gershwin, you know, heavily, it was very much... Like prepared. It was very prepared, and not only was it prepared, it was as if you had 14 hands. We've been talking with Michael Simon, the president and CEO of the Harry Fox Agency. And I got to hang out with him a bit longer, listening to Conlon and Caro on Spotify. We're going to talk a bit more about Conlon and Caro next week uh, and dig into some of the creativity that the player piano has inspired. We'll be joined by sound anthropologist Nick Seaver, might even dip into the world of MIDI. But for now, I'd like to thank this week's guests, Michael Simon, also Lisa Gittleman, author of the new book Paper Knowledge, and David Seussman, author of Selling Sounds, and uh, WFMU DJ that we hope to hear back on WFMU when his schedule permits. I'd also like to thank Adam Bell from Montclair State University, who let me borrow a bunch of awesome books about the player piano. Radio Free Culture is produced by WFMU and supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts. Our theme song is Smoothest Runes by Thick Business. It's available under a Creative Commons non-commercial license at freemusicarchive.org. And background music for the show comes from the Frog Legs compilation of Ragtime Era Favorites. It's a really fantastic compilation of 10 songs produced by Free Music Curator Audio Overplay, including this one, Pineapple Rag, a 1908 piano roll performed by Scott Joplin. He's known as the King of Ragtime. He never made a phonograph recording, but fortunately his playing is preserved thanks to the player piano. <laughs>